What's this? A Wednesday woefully underpopulated by irritation at Paul Tillich's theology? My briefcase full of Paul Tillich's theology ought to put a stop to that. Welcome everybody back to Reading and Evaluating Modern Theology, where we look through Paul Tillich's systematic theology textbook, which is not systematic theology, where he teaches us dogmatics, by which he means he makes stuff up according to the philosophy that he loves and calls it Christianity. Last time we asked, does Paul Tillich believe in the Trinity? And extended from that were the seminarians who had to read Paul Tillich's book taught to believe in the Trinity by Paul Tillich. Well, the answer is no to both. Paul Tillich demotes the doctrine of the Trinity into speculation, but then instructs people to keep the doctrine of the Trinity in our liturgies. Why is this important? Because he was teaching seminarians to lie to the laity, to deceive them, pretending that they were orthodox in their doctrine while pushing Tillich's modernism. Do you want to know why so many churches suck today? Why so many of them are just copy-pasta versions of HR policies from Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube? It's because the seminaries were turned into faith-destroying meat grinders, and the pastors that came out of that weren't Christian. Of course, there are exceptions. Some of them argued against Tillich, but by and large, churches were filled and staffed with non-Christians. Do you think that it is going to go in a Christian direction? Hmm. No. No, it won't. So a whole lot of our churches suck on account of that. They aren't even close to resembling historic Christianity. But pastor, you might retort, my pastor is a liberal type. He studied under Paul Tillich's writings, and he says orthodox things. He says he is a Christian who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our life is based on that. Well, boy, howdy, do I have some news for you. Paul Tillich also taught students to redefine theological terms, especially as it touches on the resurrection. Let's go ahead and we're going to skip forward. We will eventually go back to where we were a couple episodes ago, kind of going page by page, section by section from the beginning. But it really is high time for us to just look at the big picture of, was this guy even close to a Christian? Turns out the answer is no. So here he is on a section called The Central Symbols of the Universal Significance of Jesus as the Christ and Their Relation. More of his word salad. This is in Book 2 of Systematic Theology. The Cross of the Christ and the resurrection of the Christ are interdependent symbols. They cannot be separated without losing their meaning. The cross of the Christ is the cross of the one who has conquered the death 
of existential estrangement. Otherwise, it would only be one more tragic event, which it also is, in the long history of the tragedy of man. And the resurrection of the Christ is the resurrection of the one who, as the Christ, subjected himself to the death of existential estrangement. Otherwise, it would be only one more questionable miracle story, which it also is in the records. So, this has to be super important, right? This has to be interdependent. The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, these two go together. You can't preach the atonement without preaching the resurrection. Sure, but also, by the way, uh, it is just another tragic event in human history. And by the way, it is just another questionable miracle story, according to Paul Tillich. So what does he mean by that, though? This is super important, but also it's not important at all. We raise our eyebrows wondering what on earth he's talking about. Well, he gets into the reality of it. If cross and resurrection are interdependent, they must be both reality and symbol. In both cases, something happened within existence. Otherwise, the Christ would not have entered existence and could not have conquered it. But there's a qualitative difference. While the stories of the cross probably point to an event that took place in the full light of historical observation, the stories of the resurrection spread a veil of deep mystery over the event. The one is a highly probable fact, the other a mysterious experience of a few. One can ask whether this qualitative difference does not make a real interdependence impossible. Is it perhaps wiser to follow the suggestion of those scholars who understand the resurrection as a symbolic interpretation of the cross without any kind of objective reality. So a Christian would tell you that in history, our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, truly did die on a cross for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. He died, he rose. That is like the core of Christianity, the fact of the atonement and the resurrection. And the apostles are in agreement. The Gospels say it, St. Paul says it, St. John says it, St. Peter says it, Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. This is a fact. And it's a fact that non-Christians hate. They will do anything to go to war with the resurrection of Christ. But a believer will say, no, Jesus really did die for my sins. He underwent death for me, and he was actually bodily resurrected. Now that leaves people in a pickle who want to have non-believers behind pulpits. If a pastor gets up there behind the pulpit and says Jesus did not rise from the dead, he will be fired very quickly because that man is not a Christian. And the Christians in the churches want to hear that Jesus rose from the dead. 
because that's what Christians believe. So the solution to this then for these subversive types is to say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, while in the back of their mind saying, mm, not really, but symbolically, yeah. You have to deceive people into thinking you are a Christian when you are not if you are going to have pulpits full of non-Christians and thereby get the church to do what you want it to do. Kind of like Mormon lying. I don't know if you've ever interacted with Mormon missionaries before, but I have in the past and uh, I've asked them, so do you guys believe in the Trinity? And they'll go, oh yeah, totally, we believe in the Trinity. And when I called them on it and said, wait, your church redefined the Trinity as a group of three separate gods among a confederation of close to infinite gods. That's what Bruce McConkie taught in the LDS church. That's not really the Trinity. Why would you tell me you believe in that when you know we mean two different things? And then the Mormon missionaries got angry and left. Paul Tillich is trying to do the same thing as those Mormon missionaries. He's teaching seminarians to lie by secret redefinition. So, he says, okay, there must be some sort of reality behind the resurrection. Are we to say it's just symbolic? Uh, no. We have to say something about it, but hmm. Before he gets into this new definition that he wants in the back of the minds of his students, make no mistake, guys, he denies the resurrection. There are three theories which try to make the event of the resurrection probable. The most primitive theory, and at the same time most beautifully expressed, is the physical one. It is told in the story of the tomb which the women found empty on Easter morning. The sources of this story are rather late and questionable, and there is no indication of it in the earliest tradition concerning the event of the resurrection, namely 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Theologically speaking, it is a rationalization of the event, interpreting it with physical categories that identify resurrection with the presence or absence of a physical body. Then, the absurd question arises as to what happened to the molecules which comprise the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth. Then absurdity becomes compounded into blasphemy. What is Mr. Tillich saying to his students? Uh, this is just made up nonsense. It's stupid. I'm going to claim that the writers of the gospel wrote it way later than any other account of Christianity. And listen, it's just dumb, okay? These accounts about an empty tomb and Jesus saying, here, Thomas, put your finger into my wounds. Ah, uh, that's just, pfft, nah. Now, obviously, we're going to disagree with Paul Tillich regarding the uh, time in which the Gospels were written. Matthew's was written first. Matthew probably was the quote-unquote Q document. He was the stenographer for Jesus, and he wrote his Gospel as they traveled during Christ's ministry and after the resurrection. I'll just say the resurrection is legit in St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, puts his stamp of approval on it. Why? Because St. Paul was a Christian who believed that Jesus really rose from the dead. 
He wrote the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians to defend the resurrection. And when people ask, well, what about the kind of body that Christ has? We're hearing about him walking through walls and teleporting and stuff. And St. Paul says, well, it's a real body. But it's a little bit different than the fleshly meat sack, the maggot sack, as Luther calls it, that we currently inhabit. It's a different kind of physical body, mostly spiritual, which comes out of our physical body as we are resurrected. And he uses the little picture analogy of a seed and a plant. So St. Paul was orthodox in what he was saying. But Mr. Tillich wants to say that no, he wasn't, because there might be some Christians in his classroom that are saying, wait, what are you talking about? The entirety of the New Testament is teaching this resurrection. Why are you calling it primitive and made up? And here is how Mr. Tillich sidesteps that by trying to claim that the Bible has some contradictions, you see. A second attempt to penetrate into the factual side of the resurrection event is a spiritualistic one. It uses, above all, the appearances of the resurrected as recorded by Paul. It explains them as manifestations of the soul of the man Jesus to his followers, in analogy to the self-manifestations of the souls of the dead in spiritualistic experiences. Obviously, this is not the resurrection of the Christ, but an attempt to prove the general immortality of the soul and the claim that it has the general ability after death to manifest itself to the living. Spiritualistic experiences may or may not be valid, but if even if valid, they cannot explain the factual side of the resurrection of the Christ symbolized as a reappearance of the total personality, which includes the bodily expression of his being. And this is so much the case that he can be recognized in a way which is more than the manifestation of a bodiless spirit. And here, Paul Tillich is just lying. Nobody in St. Paul's day believed that the soul was not immortal. He was preaching to Greeks, Gentiles, who believed that the soul persisted after death. St. Paul was not the kind of foolish man to go to a bunch of Greeks who already believed in an immortal soul, see the myth of Orpheus, see their entire mythology concerning Hades, or even to some of the Zoroastrians he may have encountered that believed in an immortal soul. He wouldn't go to these guys and go, Oh, by the way, <laughs> LOL, souls are immortal. I know you don't believe that even if you say it. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 through 49 is all about the new nature of a resurrected body because what people thought was ridiculous about Christianity was that somebody would come back from the dead with a real physical body. And so Paul is clarifying on that. He is not saying, oh, it's just, you're a ghost, bro. In fact, he concludes the whole chapter talking about, yes, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Your flesh and blood, marred by sin, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
So how does God solve that pickle? Well, St. Paul writes, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality your nature changes you become a heavenly being your body is sanctified to the point where now you are everything adam was supposed to be Paul Tillich is ignoring the actual text that St. Paul writes in order to create an artificial contradiction between the Gospels and the Epistles. He builds up two straw men, cuts them down, and then tells you to not believe in the resurrection as the entirety of Christendom has believed it since Christ rose from the dead. That's what he was teaching people in seminaries. Now that said, he's going to replace it with something, right? He's hollowed out the concept of the resurrection. He's hollowed out the actual event. And he has to replace it with something so that these new pastors going into churches can tell the laity that they really do believe in the resurrection. Let's see how he redefines it as he teaches us to lie like Mormons. We must ask anew what this reality is. In order to describe it, we must look at the negativity which has overcome in it. Certainly it is not the death of an individual man, no matter how important. Therefore, the revival of an individual man, or his reappearance as a spirit, cannot be the event of resurrection. The negativity which has overcome in the resurrection is that of the disappearance of him whose being was the new being. It is the overcoming of his disappearance from present experience and his consequent transition into the past, except for the limits of memory. And since the conquest of such transitoriness is essential for the new being, Jesus, it appeared, could not have been its bearer. At the same time, the power of his being had impressed itself indelibly upon the disciples as the power of the new being. In this tension, something unique happened. In an ecstatic experience, the concrete picture of Jesus of Nazareth became indissolubly united with the reality of the new being. He is present wherever the new being is present. Death was not able to push him into the past, but this presence does not have the character of a revived and transmuted body, nor does it have the character of the reappearance of an individual soul. It has the character of spiritual presence. He is the spirit, and we know him now only because he is the spirit. In this way, the concrete individual life of the man Jesus of Nazareth is raised above transitoriness into the eternal presence of God as spirit. This event happened first to some of his followers who had fled to Galilee in the hours of ex his execution, then to many others, then to Paul, then to all those who in every period experience his living presence here and now. This is the event. 
It has been interpreted through the symbol resurrection, which is readily available in the thought forms of that day. The combination of symbol and event is the central Christian symbol, the resurrection of the Christ. Okay, so what does that amount to? What that amounts to is inspiration and fond thinking of Jesus making him a permanent historical fixation in the mind. That is what Paul Tillich calls the resurrection. St. Peter gets lonely, he goes out fishing, and then he looks out into the horizon of the waters early that morning, and Temple of the Dog starts playing in his head. I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence. And he sheds these tears of inspiration and gets ecstatic feelings, and then gets so excited to say, guys, guys, Jesus is totally with us in our hearts or whatever. Let's tell people he rose from the dead. That's Paul Tillich's narrative here in his denial of the resurrection, hollowing it out and replacing it with some fondness and memory, I guess. Claiming that because Jesus was such a cool teacher or whatever, he literally just stuck around in our heads like a song that won't leave. I'm going hungry, yeah. Now, of course, this doesn't make sense. None of the apostles, nobody that wrote scripture ever said, yeah, so Jesus rose from the dead, man. We're going to die for this truth because the Greeks hate it. The Jews are really mad at us for it, for proclaiming he rose from the dead. They're killing us left and right, telling us to deny this central fact of our faith. And we're not going to deny it. But it really just amounts to us being all inspired and happy that we knew Jesus. Christian apologists for a long time now have said these men would not have died for something they knew was a lie. Paul Tillich's response was, yeah, but like, what if it's a really good lie, though? And it's like a really hopeful lie, and like, it makes you feel more permanent or something. It's absurdity. It is absolute absurdity. But he taught thousands and thousands and thousands of seminarians to lie to their congregations by redefining resurrection. Again, the churches suck because they're staffed by non-Christians. Next time we will start looking at more of this blatant subversion and fight back against it as we recognize signs of all of this. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen. Mm-hmm.